Matthew chapter 18 is where we'll end up in just a few minutes. So you can turn there and have it available and accessible to you. Matthew 18 is a tremendous passage our Lord has spoken to us, and we will look at it uh, in some detail and yet in some kind of a summary fashion as well. So uh, bear with that. The idea, though, is that problems, this is a quotation from a book by J. Adams uh, called Handbook of Church Discipline, problems between members and in homes often are quickly resolved by church discipline. And you think, really? Well, hang on. But they persist and get worse when it's not applied. Discipline is important then and cannot be dismissed so readily as it has been without great peril to the church, to the offender, and of greatest importance to the name of Christ. J. Adams, in his handbook of church discipline, wrote that. Very good book, highly recommended, on this topic of church discipline. And you think, wait a minute, didn't you, just, didn't you just preach about membership here recently and trying to get people into the church, and now you're talking about getting people out of the church? Wait a minute, no. Church discipline is not, hey, let's get people out of this church. Church discipline is let's make the church as pure and holy and, and problem-free as possible. How? By addressing the issues, not by dismissing them, not by excluding all the sinners, by the way. If we excluded all the sinners, who's going to be left here to turn the lights out? You know, we, we need discipline. We need the admonition, the counseling even, that we can provide to one another. A definition of uh, biblical discipline is simply an application of the means of sanctification. A lot of, a lot of big words there. It's how we grow. It's how we grow in Christ. It's how we mature for the glory of God. It's how we uh, fill out the identity, the, the headship of Christ in our lives. It is growth away from sin. It's growth toward righteousness. And we get to be helpful participants in uh, each other's lives, encouraging one another toward love and good works. And so discipline is not just, oh, we're going to get these people out of the church. Discipline is what we need every day for ourselves, for our, our, our close relations. We need the, the growth in away from sin and toward righteousness. There are different aspects of discipline. And there are three, is what we'll see here. One is what we ought to do most of the time. In fact, well, not as many as the third thing. We'll, we'll get to it in just a moment. But th this idea of formative discipline, or maybe in, in another word, preventative or preventive discipline. It's a broad sense of discipline. It's what the church does to help each one of us grow. Uh, change and grow for the glory of God happens through preaching and teaching and prayers and fellowship and the celebration of the ordinances and uh, baptism in the Lord's table. The encouragement that we have toward one another, the ministry of the word of God through authentic relationships, that's formative or preventative discipline, happens in the, in the context of a family, just family life. Most of the time, uh, parents training children, it's formative, it's, it's helpful, it's, it's training, it's warning, it's, it's correcting in that kind of way. There is another aspect that we'll get to in just a moment of uh, where it has more of a something bad just happened, so we need to discipline in that regard. But most of our time ought to be spent in this this uh, formative or building up kind of discipline. It's education, just training. Hey, you're going to have dangers down the road. Let's prepare for that right now. Let's establish some good habits right now so that when these temptations come, that you'll know how to respond. And then we can help one another. Do you remember how Moses was educated in all the fullness of the Egyptians, all the, the wisdom of the Egyptians? Well, and there were lots of things that he learned, I'm sure. Paul also was educated under Gamaliel, the rabbi. 
So education is a formative process discipline, another way to, to refer to that. We can see how the grace of God, this is Titus 2, verse 12, the grace of God teaches us or disciplines us, it educates us to deny wickedness and ungodliness and, whatever, and so forth, but to live righteously before God. Again, from J. Adams' book, The Handbook of Church Discipline, he says, when Christians are fed a regular diet of truth in the scriptures in such a way that they grow by it, there will be far less need for remedial discipline in a church. Remedial is our second category. Those matters in which one finds himself straying from the path will be met by the individual himself or informally and early on through the help of other brothers and sisters in the body. And formal church discipline will be largely unnecessary. What we think of discipline the guy out or the lady out of the church. That ought to be the characteristic and ordinary way in which uh, discipline functions in the everyday life of a church. We just encourage one another. We exhort one another toward righteousness, toward truth, God, that's walking in the light as we, as we talked about earlier. So formative discipline is a key aspect. But then there is this idea of corrective discipline, or as J. Adams just said, referred to it as remedial discipline. Something bad happened. We've got to, we've got to restore this person. We have to address this issue. There was a sin that was involved. Uh, this in, in, includes admonition, uh, counseling, confrontation. It includes rebuke, uh, chastening. might even involve uh, punishment, That uh, the consequences of that sin. And has the goal, the ultimate goal is not condemnation, not exclusion, it's restoration. It's saying, look, you, you made a mistake, you made an error, you sinned, you transgressed God's holy and wonderful good law. What are you going to do about it? You're going to continue? Say, well, I guess I, I broke his law, I may as well see what else I can break because I'm on a roll here. No, stop, turn around, turn around. Why are you going that way? I, my goal is not to condemn you, my goal is to help you return to Christ, turn back to Christ. We want to rescue, really, this idea of corrective discipline is a rescue mission. It's a rescue operation. You're going in a dangerous path. Turn while you can because there is a line you can cross. And back when I was in college, Mariah and I were there, there was a, a chapel message. And the title of it was something like the, the danger of unconfessed sin in the life of Saul, something like that. And it traced... The, the advance of sin in the life of King Saul, not Saul of Tarsus, but King Saul back in the Old Testament. And one of the points he made was that there is a line you can cross, and you don't know where that line is. There was a line that Saul crossed, and it ruined his whole life, his family life, the dynasty, the, the whole kingdom uh, split for a period of years between David and his son. It's just nastiness going on there. Or in the case of David himself, crossing a line uh, in Second Samuel 11 with Bathsheba. And look, you think, oh, I, I can come back to this. I got this all under control. I know what I'm doing. Do you really? There is a line you can cross. You don't know what it is. And you cannot choose the consequences as a result of your sin. Be careful. Be careful how you conduct your life. And so this corrective discipline is Samuel tried to do that with Saul, tried to correct him, tried to admonish him, tried to get him back, and he wouldn't have anything of it. And he was doing his own thing. And, and you see how that ended for Saul, um, consulting mediums and spiritists, which he outlawed, by the way. Just crazy, insane things that, that Saul did as a result of his wickedness. Do you know, you think, well, wait a minute, why, why do we have to correct other people? Can't we just get along? Well, do you know... The Lord disciplines those whom he hates. No, no, no. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. God is so gracious to correct us along the path when he says, my way is the right way. Walk in it. And we say, but what about, and what about 
what about the truth? What about walking in righteousness and holiness? What about following God's word? God is so gracious. Prophet after prophet and after prophet after prophet, God sent to his people. They were stiff-necked, rebellious, didn't want to receive the admonition, didn't want to receive the correction that he so graciously, time after time, appealed to them. Finally, they crossed a line. They couldn't choose when that line was. They'd got consequences. The judgment that God had foretold centuries before, it came to pass, and they were cast out of the land, and then they repented. Well, formative discipline, corrective discipline, which we'll talk more about in this passage in Matthew 18, but there is one that really under, undergirds all these different aspects of discipline, and that is self-discipline. I can't be your conscience. I can't be always with you, and you can't be always with me to help us along the path. I need to regulate myself. I need to have, in other words, self-control or self-mastery. I need to have a self-government, not all filled with self, self, self. But if it doesn't start with me, and I've got to rely on other people to be my life, essentially be my conscience, be my decision-making, be my wisdom, I'm not going to prosper very much. If I think that that I am my performance in this life is totally bound up with other people, we're going to be disappointed because we're not there every time that there is an issue. Now, if, if there's a season of time, season of life rather, that we need that kind of support, that's really what Matthew 18 is going to teach us in just a moment. <clears throat> but self-control is the the thing to which we look for. When, when somebody is restored, as we'll see in, in Matthew 18, but also in Galatians 6, the idea is they're back on their own two feet. They can manage these things. They have, they're, they've been trained and even corrected or, or punished to make wise choices now, to forsake this foolishness over here and that over there, and now they are managing themselves. If you want to do a good study in, in the Proverbs, look for... Um, uh, these kinds of words, self-control or uh, controls his spirit or, or things like stronger than a man who takes a city is the one who controls his own spirit. It's a loose paraphrase. Those kinds of things, you think, wow, this is, this is uh, how can this be? I thought these mighty men were this. No, the mightiest person is one who can control himself. So be careful about that. Self-discipline is what we are really after. Well, why should we exercise corrective discipline? We're going to focus on corrective discipline because we've talked about formative stuff before and we could talk more about self-control later. But why should we exercise this corrective or remedial discipline? Well, there are 10 reasons, so prepare yourself. One is obedience. Obedience, yes, obedience. God commands us to do it. God commands us to correct one another, to discipline one another. Uh, we'll see it. It's a command right here in Matthew 18, verse 15. But Luke 17, 3 says also, if you be on your guard, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Wait a minute. Me? Rebuke him? What, what authority do I have? No, if, you, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him, and so forth. Galatians 6, 1, also a command that we have to obey God's word. Imitation is another way. We imitate God because God corrects correctively disciplines his people. He disciplines his own children. He disciplined, whoa, he disciplined Ananias and Sapphira. And we think that was discipline. Were they believers? I don't know, but they lied against or, uh, to the Holy Spirit. They lied to God about these things and God killed them. That was, that was serious. And the aftermath of that was, whoa, people were afraid to identify or join themselves with the church. But that's an important aspect because of the purity of the church, which is another reason we'll get to 
in a moment. So we imitate God by practicing corrective discipline. We also imitate the other God's people, where Paul we, and Peter and other people in the, in the scriptures uh, exercise this corrective discipline. We discipline because of necessity. We have problems that we need to be resolved. We have just, wow. Can you imagine all the things that we could possibly get ourselves into, all the messes that we can possibly make in our lives? We need this corrective discipline. Jesus said in earlier in this passage, Matthew 18, it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come or, or uh, temptations or opportunities for sin. So we need to be on guard against these things. James 3 verse 2 says, we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble. It's a problem. But there, there is a need then for this corrective, restorative discipline. Other items we could see there. But, and of course, why do we exercise corrective discipline? Because we want to restore. We want to rescue. We want to redeem these people. Not redeem in a, in a capital R sense. Christ does that. But we rescue people out of dangerous situations. Matthew 18 uh, has that idea. Galatians 6, we referred to it here recently. Uh, anyone who is caught in a trespass, that's usually not a good situation. Not something you'd, hey guys, I'm caught in a trespass. It's not something to boast in. That's something to be ashamed of. That's something to say, please, help me kind of thing. So when we are restoring one another, it's not for the purpose of condemning and, and finding fault. I mean, good grief. I find fault with you. You can find fault with me. But that's, that, but that's not the point. Let's run to Christ. Let's get right back on the, on the right track here. Another idea. Why do we exercise corrective discipline? Because of reconciliation. As that opening quotation from Jay Adams' book said, situations, friendships, relationships in the church and family, worker, work situation, they will fall apart unless we deal with these issues, unless we speak truth to another for the purpose of reconciling each one to God, but also to each other. We want peace and harmony in our relationships. So reconciliation is so important, which we'll see here in Matthew 18. Another reason is because we love. You think, well, I thought it was hateful to kind of talk to people about their sin. No, it is loving and gracious and kind. It's an evidence of our brotherly concern for one another, our watchfulness for one another. At John 13, Jesus says, I give you a new commandment that you should love one another, that you should put up with each other, that you would bear with one another, that you would help one another in this walk, this marathon of righteousness or toward righteousness. We want to reprove one another. Again, not because we're better. I'm better than you. You're better than me. We, we're going in the same direction. Hey, come on. You're getting stuck over here. Come on. Let's get, let's get back in line. Let's get back uh, running toward Christ. And so love is, is one of the reasons why we exercise uh, corrective discipline. We want harmony. Remember those two ladies? Whoa. I mean, it's kind of like you don't want this kind of word about you written in the scriptures that everybody else in the successive generations will, will continue to read. Philippians 4 and verse 2, I urge Euodia and Syntyche to live in peace or harmony in the Lord. What have they got going on between them? And harmony is why we practice corrective discipline, so that there would be peace and joy in the church because relationships are going to fall apart. There are going to be upsets. There's going to be disappointments one another. There are going to be just outright transgressions, violations of, of one another. And we need harmony. We need this corrective process to help one another uh, restore this harmony in the church. An eighth out of ten reason is to honor the Lord, to preserve his honor, to glorify Christ, to glorify God in his work of, of saving, regenerating people. Uh, Titus 2, 5 and 10, verses 5 and 10, speak about this, for the honor of Christ, so that God's name would not be blasphemed. 
well, the opposite. We want God's name to be glorified. We want God in his redemptive saving work to be honored in these things. Ninthly, purity, purity in the church. This assures, it doesn't guarantee, but it moves us toward purity in the church. It prevents sin from spreading to other people in the church. When we talk about a root of bitterness rising up, that's a person, a root, somebody, a bitter root in that in that congregation. We don't want that bitter root in the congregation. Not that we want to get rid of the person. No, we want to get rid of the bitterness that they have, the resentment that's in their hearts, this issue that is causing other people to want to sin in that same way. We want to get those situations that that impure uh, thought and, and actions out of this out of this congregation Hebrews 12 and verse 15 is where that reference is we want to make sure that sin is not spread in the church but also not in the community as the testimony of a church is manifested hey you're going to this church I know somebody else in that church and they are a scoundrel just a rascal just evil and wicked and they've done this and that we don't want that to be true of this church or any church we want those in God's visible local church to be righteous, to be humble, to be confessing sin, and not be blatant and, and being, uh, you know, have a notorious uh, reputation for excesses and sins and all this kind of thing. A final reason why we exercise corrective discipline is the growth of the body. We want this body to grow. Unresolved conflict hinders the spiritual growth in the congregation. We want to eliminate or at least address these issues so that the body can grow and be part of God's uh, work in this world. And we are so grateful for what God is doing to accomplish these things because we can do it in our own strength. We can do it for, uh, for our own selves. We're not motivated out of our own aggrandizement, self-praise, oh, we pray, all praise to Liberty Bible Church. No, we want praise to go to God, Christ, who is this one. And when we deal with sin properly in a righteous way, that is how the body grows, how it is expanded even in this neighborhood. Now, we looked at excuses. Why, why should we? We looked at 10 reasons. I don't even know how many reasons or excuses, I should say, why not to. And I'll just briefly skip through these, not to give you ammunition to say, why well, you said we shouldn't do it because of this. Didn't Jesus say, judge not, so you'll not be judged? Will not be judged? Well, yes, that's James, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 7. But essentially he says, judge yourself first, and then you'll be able to help other people deal with their sin. So read the whole context. Didn't Jesus say, let him who is sinless cast the first stone? Well, yes, he did say that. John chapter 8, verse 7, he said that. But you know, in that same context, Wow, what a story. It, I mean, I'd love to unpack it, but do you remember his last words to the lady? Go and sin no more. Well, who are you to Whoa, you are sinless. Okay, I got you. But he, he has the point, though. I'm addressing your sin. You are a sinner, and you know it. Everybody else knows it. Go and sin no more. It's a remedial or corrective discipline. Yes, don't cast the first stone, but do help other people toward righteousness and truth. You know, we just don't have a need to do this. Our teaching ministry and prayer are marvelously effective. This is more from a pastoral perspective. You know, we don't need to counsel. We, we've got it all covered from the pulpit. The pulpit handles all the issues. Oh, that'd be nice, nice to, to say, but we all need to grow in different ways. In different ways. You're dealing with this issue. The other person across the way is dealing with this issue. No preaching ministry can meet the needs of the entire congregation. One of the reasons why we practice a ver typically practice a verse-by-verse -verse exposition of Scripture is because, by and large, we will kind of make the full gamut of the Christian life and whole experience. We'll talk about marriage. We'll talk about uh, uh, 
investments. We'll talk about uh, how to deal with unruly people in the workplace. We'll talk about how, to, how do we, this is a disappointment in life. We're, you know, we'll study Job here next, I think. And how do you deal with this issues? I mean, when you work through the scriptures, you find pretty much everything, but you can't say everything all at once. Which is a lot of people's frustrations. Well, he didn't say this and he didn't say... I've got notes. I can't read all this to you. I'm leaving stuff out. But by and large, we need this general teaching of Scripture, but also the private conversations. Again, the minister of the Word through authentic relationships. That's what we need to have going on. You know, I've done all I can for this person. I have done all I can. I can't do anything more. Wait a minute. Unless you have obeyed Christ's command fully and, and done everything he requires, you haven't done all you can. It's kind of like the old thing, the cop-out, I've done my best. Really? Have you done your very, very, very best? Probably not. This is an issue between him and the Lord. I don't have any right to get involved. Yes, you do, because God says you need to get involved. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Uh, if, if, you, if your brother sins against you, even rebuke him, reprove him, show him his fault. So it is. God has gotten you involved, and you are an agent of God's own uh, work to restore that person. I'm trusting God to work all things together for good. I'm just going to see. I'm going to sit back and watch. God will work everything out for good, but he wants you to be involved in that process. He wants you, me, to do what he expects of us, to faithfully fulfill our, our task. You know, church discipline is just a way to remove troublemakers. Well, this may be a result of church discipline, but the primary goal is restoration, always restoration, not to get rid of people, not to get rid of troublemakers. Again, we all make trouble in different ways. We, can't, we don't want to get rid of everybody. We want to get rid of the trouble, not the troublemakers. We want to get rid of the issues, the sin that's going on in our lives. Another excuse, I just don't believe you should kick a person when he's down. He's so mean, so mean-spirited. Uh, quoting another author, Bill Good. Uh, a pastor from Indiana many years ago. He said, church discipline is not for the purpose of kicking, but restoring. It's not unloving. Rather, it's the only loving thing to do when it is needed. We think, you know, people accuse the church the only institution that shoots its wounded. No? Are you serious? There are so many institutions that, I mean, what's the phrase? Uh, uh, throw them under the bus, right? I mean, just Excuse me, the church is the only institution? No, the church is the one institution that should recognize we've all got issues. We need a Savior every day. We need to help one another to uh, grow in Christ. I think it's too legalistic, this whole thing of church discipline, this whole corrective discipline. That's just legalism. Do you know, the book in which Paul confronts full bulldozer mode or whatever, legalism, Galatians, also has that verse, Galatians 6, 1, if your brother is caught in a trespass, just ignore it. No, restore him gently and so forth. So uh, it's not legalism to take God's word seriously and try to obey it myself and to encourage other people to obey. Uh, excuse, this is not loving. Isn't our love for one another supposed to cover a multitude of sins? Yes, but one of the ways love covers a multitude of sins is by confronting the sin. We can overlook it, yes, but also confront the sin is what we need to do. James 5 speaks about that at the very end of the chapter. This causes more problems than it solves? Maybe. But you know, if you act out of fear, you know, what, what are the possible negative repercussions of this? Uh, who's this saying? This is uh, um, Carl J. Laney in his book, or in his article, Church Discipline. He said, fear of disunity, conflict, and even legal problems have, has caused many church leaders to avoid confronting Christians who are living in sin. 
Have you seen this? Have you experienced this? We don't know. We, we don't want to confront this sin because, you know, he's really connected to a lot of the families in the church. If he leaves and, we, and we've got a budget, we've got expenses. And so let's just, let's just cover this. Really? Be careful. Be zealous for God's truth, for God's reality, for God's righteousness in your church. Do you think... Do you think maybe Jesus, when he promised, I'll build my church, that he'll, he'll do it? And even if your church is a little bit smaller because you're addressing sin, that that's going to be a problem for Jesus? To find other sinners who will acknowledge their sin, will repent, and want to walk holy before God? I've never seen this work. I've never seen it work, this whole church discipline thing. Oh, really? So we shouldn't do it then? Are you a pragmatic person? We don't base our obedience to God's word upon our experience. We do what God commands us to do. Oh, if we did that, which people would leave. Surely nobody would want to join us. Well, maybe that's all right. Acts 5 talks about that. I have seen the abuse of church discipline. I'm sure you have. Just as you've seen the abuse of marriage, parenting, the abuse of governing. What, I mean, that, excuse me, you're going to base your obedience or disobedience upon God's word based on other people? I've seen the abuse of this, so I, I'm not going to do it myself. Do what God says. We want to honor the Lord, honor the Christ of, of this church pastoral perspective. I just preach them out, even by name, or, or at least by story, uh, and, and I just preach them. Yeah, that's not a biblical method. No, we want to deal with these issues. Well, we get to our scripture text finally, Matthew 18, looking uh, at, at what Jesus commands us to do. And the context, of course, is this shepherd, this one who has a lost sheep. Of course, he has 100 sheep. This is back in verse 12. He has 100 sheep, and one of them has gone astray. And so a uh, tax write-off, right? What, that one sheep, that was a dumb one anyway. I'm glad he's gone. Good grief. That was just a, just, no. The shepherd leaves the 90 and 9 and goes after that straying, lost, confused, dumb sheep, finds it and rejoices. It's back. That's a pastoral perspective. That is not just a pastoral perspective. That is the perspective that we need to have for one another looking for those who are strays, those who are a little bit on the fringe, a little bit on the outside, saying, oh, I'm not sure about this whole Christianity thing. Well, these are brothers in Christ, so it's not like they're unsure of the Christianity thing, but they're unsure about the, the full obedience, the full-throated, uh, full-throttled uh, devotion to, to Christ and to his word and his righteousness. And so uh, you can read about that in verses 12 through 14. But in verse 15, it says, if your brother sins... And maybe your translation says against you, but we'll get to that in a moment. If your brother sins, well, wait a minute. What is this sin thing? Many, many, many things about sin. The question is, when should we confront one another? Because I know that person's sinning, and yet it's not a significant sin. It's not a, it's not a habitual sin. It's not something I've seen at other times with other people. But wait a minute. What if it is? What if this is something? Yeah, they do this a lot to, to, um, to me, to other to parents, coworkers, whatever it is. When should I confront this sin? Well, several questions. Is it dishonoring to God? Well, okay, all sin is dishonoring to God. But is this specific one uh, uh, dishonoring to God? Is it? Can you go to chapter and verse in the Bible and say, okay, this person is blah 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 blah? But is there a verse that will undergird that? In other words, is God as upset about this thing as you are? And if not, then maybe take a step back and say, oh, okay, okay, I wouldn't do it myself that way. I don't think that's a good way to do life. But I can't go to a chapter and verse of where God commands, thus, you know, thus says the Lord X, Y, Z, and that person's doing ABC. And so 
that is an issue of, of dealing with it. Is it dishonor to God? And these have things like scandalous conduct, sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 5 talks about it, coveting and greediness. That's a scandalous thing. We think, oh, is that, that's not, everybody's greedy. No, don't be greedy. Don't be coveting other people's stuff. Scandalous conduct like idolatry, having other gods before God. Uh, drunkenness, swindling, laziness, refusal to work, even blasphemy is a scandalous thing needs to be confronted. Uh, things like divisive actions, sowing discord among brothers, uh, an unwillingness to reconcile with an offended brother. Uh, Matthew 8, this is the text, Matthew 18. Uh, instead of being like-minded, we are partial over here. We've got this spirit or this uh, party over here. We've got this party over here. We've got cliques in the church. No, we're, we're one church. We are together. We're not talking about cliques. You know, we're, this is the, the you know, whatever kind of group characteristic you want to attach to. We are Christ's church. That is the basis for our getting together. Not because we're uh, Democrat, Republican, uh, Native Kentuckian, uh, all the different things that would tend to divide us. We're in Christ. We adhere to his word. Now, I don't know there are implications about not so much being a Kentuckian. That's fine. But the Republican-Democrat thing, there are some implications about that. Uh, what God says, rather, in his word about, about platform and, and that kind of thing. But having a divisive spirit, Titus 3, 10, and, uh, 10 11, 9, and 10, I forget. It's Titus 3, verse 10, uh, speaks about that. A false doctrine is something we need to confront. Something that, again, not just, well, I don't agree with that interpretation of this is it outside of the mainstream of Orthodox Christianity? We need to address these things. So false doctrine. Again, big category. Is it dishonor to God? Another question. Is it hurting others? Are other be people being negatively affected by this? Again, Jesus says if your brother sins, sin does not typically give life, does not typically encourage other people toward love and good deeds. Sin is a violation of God's law. It's a violation of other people. It usually has to do with lying or stealing from other people. Uh, we want to be careful then. Is it hurting other people? Uh, for example, just being absent from the church fellowship. You think, well, how's that hurting other people? Because you have a gift that God has entrusted to you specifically, and you need to use that gift for the service of other people, building them up. We need to be together. We need each one here ministering their gift before God. If somebody else has sinned against and hurt in a sin, you need to confront it. You need to go on behalf of that person who has been sinned against unless that person wants to overlook it. Sister so-and-so has been offended by this person. Well, if they want to overlook it, fine. But if it happens habitually, continue with other people, we need to address this thing. Now, we need to be careful I don't know if you all have dogs or been with a dog before, but uh, Proverbs 26, verse 17 says, Like one who takes a dog by the ears is he who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to him. So we do need to take up an offense for other people when they've been offended, but always be careful because, look, you, you get in, involved with something, you're taking a dog by the ears, which typically they don't like, like scratching behind the ears, but grabbing them, that's going to be a problem. So be careful. It's, it's, it's not going to end up well, unfortunately. Sometimes. Hopefully, though, there will be humility and repentance and so forth. Another big question, is it hurting the offender? Not just hurting other people, but is it hurting the offender? And you think, well, why, should, why should I be concerned about the offender? That's the whole reason why Jesus is speaking about it. The, the shepherd who had 100 sheep and one got away, go after that one. It's because that sheep is in a dangerous situation. That is uh, uh, deathly, perhaps, even for this sheep. It could be that we need to address it for the sake of the brother. And that's really the perspective.
here in, in Matthew 18, perspective in Galatians 6, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. Restore that person. Sin is, is destroying that person's life. Is it hurting your relationship with that person? You know, this, this sin has, has risen up, and it's something we've tried to cover it. We've tried to overlook it. We've tried to just put up with each other. But man, they keep doing it. And they, they, they just, how can we have a relationship when this stuff keeps on going on? Uh, John MacArthur in his book, uh, Freedom and Power of Forgiveness, says, Anytime an offense results in a broken relationship, formal forgiveness is an essential step toward reconciliation. Formal forgiveness, which in this passage, Matthew 18, is, is where Peter understands uh, Jesus is going toward, and forgiveness is what we need. Well, it says, when we identify there is a sin that needs confronting, what do we do? It says, if your brother sins, go and tell the pastors, or go to the prayer meeting and say, let's pray for sister so-and-so because she, or write a good Instagram post about this. I mean, and leave the name out, but leave, put enough information so that people will understand who you're talking. No, it says, if your brother sins, go. Who should go? Me, I should go. I should go. If my brother sins, if I see my brother sinning, what we just were talking about, I need to go. Not to other people. Now, there may be a need to ask for advice or counsel. You know, this is the issue we're dealing with. And a third party is involved more in a, in a consulting role, not in a gossipy kind of role, but, but hey, how, how can I, how can I uh, work in this situation? You go, have it as a burden upon yourself. This is the task that God has committed to me at this moment. You go to, what does it say? Go and show him his fault. Go to the person, the, the offender, the one who is, is sinning in this re regard. You go to that person and you deal with, with the issues that you find there and help the person to realize what God's truth has to say. Does it say, wait, make sure that you really understand these things? No, it says, go, go, go immediately, don't hesitate. Now, it could be that maybe we didn't, don't have all the information. Well, you go even in an exploratory fashion, not in a condemning, you know, high-handed, heavy-handed kind of thing, but you go in exploratory. You know, I, I, brother so-and-so, -so, sister so-and-so, I've seen this, I've experienced it myself, what you're doing, your words, your actions, whatever. Can you help me understand from your perspective? Am I seeing, am I interpreting what you're doing? No, I've just had a bad day. Well, you've had a lot of bad days, like about three months worth. So tell me, how's this going? How can I help you in this regard? This is a dangerous spot for you and for other people and it's offensive to God. And so you go back to those things. But you do it in a way that is humble. It's more oriented toward the other person, not for your own uh, resentment and, and, and bitterness and justice and, and uh, revenge, that kind of thing. You do it for the other person. Uh, you, you go in a spirit of meekness, which means personal purity, for one. You're, you're not caught in this same, same kind of sin. You're, you're coming from a, a spirit of, of strength. Gentleness is not just meekness or, well, that's the same word. Uh, it's not an idea of timidity or, or, or weakness. That's the word I was looking for. It is strength that is under control. It is coming from the authority of God's word saying, brother, sister, you're, you're doing this. It's contrary to God's word. Can you come Let's look at the scriptures together? Let's compare your behavior to this word. And let's, let's both change as a result of looking at God's word. There are different examples of the, of the steps of this. Nathan, David, 2 Samuel 12, Jesus, we're reading it. John 4, the woman at the well speaking confronting and think about you've had five husbands and the guy you're with right now isn't your husband you have you're a prophet i mean how did why because jesus is confronting her sin and and thankfully she repents and uh, 
and goes, how many times should we go? Just once? I mean, it just says once, right? No. Go repeatedly. If it takes multiple visits, if there's, if there's some, some progress in the conversation, if there's some uh, listening is really the key idea here. If he listens to you, then you've won your brother. If he's listening to you, if he, okay, yeah, I can see that, I can see that, and and uh, yeah, I do realize that's a, a habit or a pattern in my life. You go and expose that that issue, hoping that that brother will repent. Again, it's not a condemning kind of way; it is a corrective, restorative way. You go and show him his fault. You bring the light of God's word on that habit, that word, the the thinking, maybe a, a wrong thinking, you know falsely interpreting a victim mentality or, or whatever the issue is, bring the light of God's word. Not, I mean, this is where the power is. God's word is, is able to give light in dark places. It's able to change the soul, change the mind, renew our mind through God's word. So you bring God's word to bear on these, these issues. Oh, so much that we could talk about, but it says, uh, do you do it between you and him alone? Um, so it's a private conversation. You don't need to be involving other people at this point. You bring just you and yourself. And the question is, is he listening? Is she listening? Not so much to you. I mean, yes to you, but insofar as you are representing God's prerogative, perspective, you want the person to be listening to God. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Excellent. You've won. You have restored this relationship. You've restored the person to to usefulness, to uh, harmony and peace in the, in the relationships, in the church and other situations. But what about if the brother doesn't listen? What might be some indications of that? Well, blindness. What? What are you even talking about? I don't see anything wrong with what I've done. Well, then you ought to step back and say, well, good grief. Am I off base? Am I entirely making this stuff up? And so you want to, again, make sure that you come in a spiritual gentleness Kind of in a, in a search and, and, and re- search and rescue. You're looking for this this person, but you're also search, searching: is this really an issue? Is God dishonored? Is it offending the brother of other people? These things. So, okay, if there is resistance or um, rejection of your truth and your your perspective on these things, well, make sure that you're on the right path. But if you are and you have verses to back it up, that person spiritually blind, not wanting to repent. There might be fear and embarrassment. Oh, good grief. Who else knows about this? Have you told anybody else about it? So there can be that kind of a thing, which, again, is not a, a mature response. It's more of a fearful, uh, uh, timid kind of response. It's more of a, a self-pride kind of a thing. Uh, you know, I don't want my reputation to be destroyed. Brother, sister, you're already destroying your reputation by how you're acting. Other people, it's not just me. Other people are being affected by this. Well, maybe there'll be excuses and blame shifting. You know, my wife is just, well, my kid, can you imagine all these people? And it's other people, always other people. What about you? If the, the excuse is always other people, then you're out of control. You, you have no hope then. So if your life is just destroyed by other people, what, what hope do you have of change, of joy in your life? Change what you can in yourself. Or as the, not the scripture, but the pop song says, uh, be the change you want to see in the world. You be, you, you know, the change start with you. Maybe the person's going to hide and run. And that's typically how it's going to go, right? People are going to, I don't have time for this. I'm leaving. I, I'm not, you know, who are you to, to uh, uh, in fact, taking the offensive? Who are you? I mean, what about you? Just how perfect are you and your behavior? And just, you know, that's not what we're after. It's not about me. It's about you. How can I help you be re- uh, restored or reconciled to God? Uh, 
What we're really after for is repentance, listening to God. Isaiah 66, verse 2, to this one I will look to him who is humble and contrite at heart and who trembles at my word. That's the response we have. Listening is what it says. Verse 15, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. The other steps going forward, and I, I will have to rehearse them another time, but each time it goes forward, you bring whether two witnesses with you to, to confirm every fact, and if he doesn't listen, then tell it to the church, and if he doesn't listen to the church, then you treat him as a tax collector, and a, or as a Gentile and a tax collector. And the point is, it's not so much the sin that was the, the our initial thing back in verse 15, if your brother sins, the way that the, the this church discipline thing advances, not because of the sin is so egregious or, or vile or repulsive, it's you're not listening. You are not listening to the appeal that I'm making based on Scripture. The sin, the initial, you know, the presenting issue, that's, forget about it. The issue is you're not repenting. You don't have a humble and contrite heart. You are stiff-necked and rebellious and, and full years. You got it all figured out and, and all that. No, listen, listen. It, 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 I mean, that is the advance. If he listens to you, you've won. But in verse 16, if he does not listen to you, go this way. If he refuses to listen to them, verse 17. And if he refuses to listen to the church, it's the whole idea of listening, being being a humble and able to receive that instruction. Again, much more could be said about the, this wonderful passage. I do have phases of reproof. Private conversation, small group conversation, tell it to the church. And if he's not listening, she's not listening, at all those different phases, no, those just aren't aren't just one-off conversations. You know, check, we did this. Okay, check, we did that. Check, we did that. They're out. No, these are long. As long as the brother is responding in, in somewhat positive fashion, you be patient. You you give as much time and attention to that issue. I mean, weeks, months, trying to restore this person because the the consequences are rather dire here. What what goes on with an unrepentant believer, one who is truly justified, but is just living not right before God. What does God do to unrepentant believers? Chastening, Hebrews 12, talks about that. God disciplines those whom he loves. He wants us to bear the peaceable fruit of repentance. You know, that's what we bear if we're trained by that discipline. In the context of, of the Lord's table, 1 Corinthians 11, God says, Paul, God through Paul says, it's because we we're not regarding the body rightly. A lot of you are suffering kind of things, and many of you are sleeping. Many have gone, have died because of your unrepentant sin. In fact, that's the other aspect. John, and the first John, talks about the sin that leads to death. I don't say you should pray for that, but pray for those who are, are dealing rightly with their sin and coming, confessing it before God. What happens to an unrepentant believer? Pretty serious stuff. Remember how, how Paul says, I have handed this one over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. What? This is a serious thing. What's Satan going to do? He's not going to go in a, in a spirit of gentleness and try to restore that person. He wants to, excuse me, try to restore. He wants to destroy. Satan is a thief, a killer, a murderer, is a liar. Don't believe in Satan. But to be handed over to Satan, this is a serious issue. Death. And we think, oh, well, death. Well, what am I, wait a minute. This person is, has not confessed their sin before God. Okay, they might, based on Christ's righteousness, might, we might see them in, in glory, but they have forsaken all their rewards, all the rewards that, that God wants to lavish upon those who love his appearing. They say, ah, the rewards God gives me, they aren't near anything what the world can offer me. Really? 
the world that is passing away and the lust thereof and the one who does the, that stuff will perish with the world. But the one who does, does the will of God abides forever. That's what we're talking about. Really, you would change and exchange the glory of God for filth? Repent. Repent. A final uh, text and we'll be done. This is from, I forget who's, this is from J. Adams. I don't think I have the reference at the end. He says, church discipline is part of God's work and is a ministry as surely as any other. In our day, it is a much needed and much neglected ministry. The absence of it may well be the most severe and debilitating problem in the church of this century. And this was last century, but it still works. My, excuse me, all believers are called in this way to be ministers of holiness, helping guard the purity and integrity of Christ's body. When they minister discipline in a spirit of love, gentleness, and humility, they can be effective weapons in God's hands for purifying the church and restoring his fallen children. This is from John MacArthur's commentary on this passage, Matthew 16. We want to be part of God's hands of purifying the church. Unless we think, oh, the purity of the church isn't that important. Christ died for the purity of his church. And we would take it just for granted. Oh, yeah, well, we're imperfect. We're all going to heaven. Christ, what's Christ is the Christ died for the purity of the church, and we will just neglect it. We want to encourage one another toward love and good deeds for the glory of God, for the best interest of each one, for the peace, love, and harmony, and the testimony of the gospel in this wild and wicked world. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your patience with us. Please help us be patient with one another. We know that we all sin in various ways, and we all stumble in various ways, but that's not an excuse. That's just an understanding and that we can help one another. It's not like we need to go out and, and hunt for when our brother sins. We Good grief, it happens every time, all the time. But please help us to have a spirit of gentleness, a spirit of hope even, that you are a saving God. Not just saving in a justification sense, but saving in a, a sanctification, making us more holy sense. Even as Peter and his response in that passage, Matthew 18 says, how often should I forgive my brother when he sins? I mean, that is a, really the wrong perspective. And Jesus goes right and, and, and confronts it. If you don't forgive other people for their sin, God hasn't forgiven you and you have no forgiveness. Our Father, we're so grateful for the forgiveness we have in Christ. And we pray that we would show that to other people as well be more concerned for their spiritual vitality than our uh, offense or, or retribution or revenge or anything. Be more concerned for other people before Lord, before the Lord and your testimony, your, your reputation in this world. It's a difficult task dealing with each other's sins, but it is what you've entrusted to us. We pray that we would do it gently, humbly, contritely, with great hope. You are a saving God. We thank you and pray in Christ's name. Amen.